Let's give our attention to the word now this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> we are all well aware of the, the power of a wrong attitude. Maybe when I use the word attitude, the first thing that comes to your mind is when you were a teenager, if you are a teenager. Sometimes what teenagers get picked on for the most is their attitude. You've got a bad attitude. But really, that can follow us through our lives, can it? And maybe not us. Maybe it's with other people on any team. It is a powerful force attitude on a sports team. If there's a wrong attitude, or maybe in a school project, or a work project, or if you're involved in a community project, or maybe even just a home project. I can't do this. I can't do it. Or I won't do it. I've just got this attitude of resistance or maybe you or someone else has feelings of inadequacy. We, we can't get it done. We don't have enough resources or they're fearful. What if I really give myself to this and I fail? Or they're complacent. They just don't really care. They're kind of indifferent. Maybe in school projects, that was just the person who just wanted the grade. They were more than happy to freeload off of everybody else who did the work. An independent attitude, I'm going to do it on my own. An overconfident attitude, I can do it on my own. I don't need you. Somebody who's just stubborn, these, are, these will all tear apart a team. Attitude governs, in many ways, behavior. And it's often contagious, isn't it? We can often spread our bad attitude or pick up bad attitudes from others. Attitude, for good or for bad, governs us, and a bad one has often proved fatal to success. Well, here in Luke chapter 10, in the ministry of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, Jesus has just set his face recently towards Jerusalem. He's intent on going there, and this is what's going to dominate much of the rest of the Gospel of Luke, is Jesus in Jerusalem for the final time, ministering, preparing to die. This is a major shift in his earthly ministry. But along the way there, as Luke records it, it's evident among Jesus' disciples that there are many distractions to them. For the work at hand. If you just glance back at chapter 9, maybe across the page, they've recently come back from a, a mission of uh, healing and preaching with grace, great success. Jesus sends the 12 out and commissions them to do this, and they're really excited about it. But then later in the same chapter, as they're on their way to Jerusalem, they're soon quarreling about who is the greatest among them. And this is something Jesus has to rebuke them for. And in fact, they're trying to limit other people from doing Jesus' work. Who is this person that's casting out demons in your name? Should we stop them? And Jesus gives them instruction. No, they're not opposed to you. They're working with you. These men are just kind of portrayed in Luke's account as just kind of flitting from thing to thing, distracted, although Jesus is dead set on going to Jerusalem. John and James are even dead set at one point on calling down fire from heaven on those 
in the village of, villages of Samaria who reject Jesus. But they're also coming to see the cost of following Christ. And near the end of the chapter, chapter 9, they're coming to see the fact that the many who profess their allegiance are not, in fact, qualified to be Jesus' disciples. Look at Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have, air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. These are sobering words for Jesus' 12 disciples to hear. There's a cost to following Jesus. Jesus articulates this elsewhere. You must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. That's what he says. The call to be a follower of Jesus is the call to abandon everything for him, should it be necessary. To, to follow in the footsteps of his suffering, to follow him no matter what. And as there is much work to be done, the task is great. This scene for the disciples, that could be a source of discouragement to them. Who's really going to succeed in helping us in God's harvest? Is it just going to be us? Is that it? I referenced not long before this, Jesus sending out 12, the 12 disciples to heal and cast out demons and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And here in our text this morning, you see a very similar account, but it's not 12, it's 70 or 72, perhaps. Luke 10, verse 1, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And Jesus is sending them on a very similar kind of mission. You've got to depend on God completely to provide for you. God's, Jesus is giving them instructions based on the responses of people to their, to their preaching. And he's giving them the assurance that God sends them with this message and they bear his authority. There's a lot of responsibility in this. But in sending out these 70, what I want us to notice this morning is that Jesus draws their attention before he sends them out to those to whom they will be preaching the gospel. Look in verse 2. Jesus was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus uses this image of Harvest, it's a common one for them in an agricultural society. It's, it's ready to be harvested. There's a certain timeliness about the work. You have to go and do it right now so you don't lose the crop. There's great value in this harvest. And the image of this harvest in Jesus' mind represents the lost who need to hear the gospel. And in this commission here, 
Jesus instills in these 70 the sober urgency of God's spiritual harvest. It's serious, serious business. And he's doing this because of their tendency to have wrong attitudes about evangelism and ours. This is a serious work, and we need to realize how serious it is because we tend to have wrong attitudes about preaching the gospel. And I just want to set it in our minds that there's a harvest at all. Doesn't that show the mercy and the love of Christ? He is he's seeing these people. He cares about them, and he's going to get them. He doesn't have to do that. That's, that's merciful. That's gracious. That's his heart towards sinners. But he's giving a command about the harvest, and he calls it his harvest. That shows his authority and his sovereignty here. We're going to see that. This is his urgency toward his people about sinners. And the lesson for us today from this text is that we must fervently pray about spiritual harvest because God is sovereign over it. Or we could say it another way, God's sovereignty over the spiritual harvest invites fervent prayer. It should encourage fervent prayer. We should do it, but it's also an encouragement. God is sovereign, so pray. Don't be discouraged. And I believe God's sovereignty is evident in three ways in this passage. And each one, as we'll see, is a reason for prayer. Let's read our text again. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first point that we should see here is that we should pray because God knows that the need exceeds our resources. God knows. He knows that the job is too big for us to do. And that should encourage us to pray. There's great potential, isn't there, in a ripe harvest. There's great potential for income. There's great potential for workers. And the potential for souls to be saved is great. Just look around. There's a lot of potential, but there's a lot of need. There aren't enough harvesters. We're talking in business terms. We're going to have a shortfall here. We're not going to be able to get it all. The need is enormous, and the time is extremely short. Nobody has time to wait. And in his grace, what I want to draw our attention to is that God really does want everyone to hear the good news. I was just reading this morning. God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes more pleasure in wicked people turning from their sin, but wicked people who refuse, of course they have to meet God's judgment. But God doesn't take pleasure in that. God is gracious. He wants everyone to hear the good news that God will save you from your sin. He will forgive your debt of sin if you will turn from it. But the time is desperately short. What does James say? Your life is but a vapor. We haven't had too many days this winter where you go outside and you can uh, wish you weren't outside. Uh, we've had a little bit of a mild winter, but what is it like up here? You breathe and it's gone. And maybe if you have glasses, you realize that you're fogging up your glasses the whole time. But that's your life. 
you who say, we're going to go do this or that. Who are you? You have no idea how long you have to live. Maybe God will, by strength, give you 70 years, 80 years. We just celebrated with a a lady in our church, 103 years. That's remarkable. Lord, teach us to number our days. That's what Moses said. Give Give me a heart of wisdom so that I may number my days. God knows exactly how many days you're going to live before you even lived a single one. They're written down. It's not going to change. And the ordinary way that it goes is people are born, they grow old, and they die. But we're not guaranteed that. And even if we are in God's plan, we don't know it. And our life is still a vapor. Even if you have 80 years, 100 years, 120 years, what is that in light of eternity? Today is the day of salvation, Jesus says. There are a number of detrimental attitudes that we could creep in here that would keep us from evangelizing and praying about evangelizing. I I do believe inadequacy, feelings of, I can't do it. We can't do it. We don't have enough resources. That will keep us from evangelizing if we don't pray because we can't. We don't have enough resources on our own. But maybe the more common one is distractedness and particularly the distraction of worldliness. We just don't care. It doesn't really phase us that there are people dying and going to hell today. Is that a sobering thought to you? Do you think about it? There are many things in our world, especially our society, that want to push death to the edges. People don't like thinking about death. It's not a comfortable thing to think about death let alone to talk about it, let alone to think about it, let alone to make plans for it. People want to rule over death. They want to appoint the time when they die. They want to appoint the time, the beginning and the end. What do you you think our world is about? What do you think the devil is about? Trying to wrest control of death from God. It's God's right. And we have to think about the fact that our day is coming The need is enormous for us. Time is extremely short. We have to pray, but God knows this. It's not just that the the need is enormous and the time is short, but it's also beyond our resources and that the need is spiritual and souls are valuable. No sinner can save a soul. God says something really remarkable through the prophet Ezekiel, that even if Even if Job and Noah and Daniel were here, those three righteous men, even if they were here, they could not save anyone but themselves. God holds these men in high esteem. Job, Noah, Daniel, they were righteous men. They spent their lives worshiping God with a pure heart, and we would be wise to, to aspire to be men like them. But even if they could come to Old Testament Israel, the only person they could die for would be them. And even their own righteousness wouldn't be enough for them. No sinner can save another sinner. That's why you need a sinless sacrifice to take your place. And you need an eternal sacrifice to pay for all of us and the whole world throughout time. The other implication of this image of a harvest. 
besides being plentiful, you, you drive through these grain fields. We have some not too far from here, right? Even in Ohio, you drive by and you're just overwhelmed by the sheer number of heads of wheat or, or shocks of corn and the ears of corn on each shock. There's tons of them, but there's also great value there. And that's kind of embedded in this image. This harvest to the owner is valuable. It's worth something. And the way that Jesus sees the, the sea of souls in front of him is that they are souls that matter to him. They're headed either to heaven or hell. God says to the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He's looking to the time of the end at the resurrection. Everybody's promised a resurrection. You know that? But some will be raised to a resurrection of life for eternal life with God. Others will be resurrected only to be condemned to eternal agony and separation from God in hell. And these are people for whom Christ died. These are people who God created in his image. God cares about these people. He made them. And they're supposed to do something that represents him. But in sin, that image is defaced and people refuse to turn from their sins. So they spend their whole lives just defacing God's image in themselves, dishonoring God. And they're going to pay for that. And God cares about that. For his own sake, for their sake, God is merciful. But my point is, this is a spiritual view of people that Jesus has. When he looks on the harvest, he sees that these people have eternal value in God's eyes. They're going to spend eternal life somewhere. And when he looks at people, he doesn't just see a man or a woman or a Republican or a Democrat or white or black or brown. He sees a soul that matters to him. We should adopt this. And I, again, there are attitudes here which will keep us from seeing people in this way, seeing them as valuable in God's eyes. Again, we just don't care. Do you see how that attitude will lead you away from praying about evangelism and, and engaging in evangelism? Maybe you don't value God's image in people any more than someone who's an unbeliever. And I hope that's not true, but sometimes it is. The world just crowds out what should matter with other things that just don't. But sometimes we just think, you know, these people just aren't responsive. They don't respond to the gospel. We, we put people beyond God's grace without ever actually extending God's grace to them. You know, when a, when a soldier on the front lines is in the battle, the, the tent monitoring radar, if he spots blips on the radar screen, he can't do anything about that threat but relay information to people who can. He doesn't fly in a plane. He doesn't man the mortars. He doesn't, he can't do anything about that threat, but he has one job 
what does he have to do? He's got he's to tell somebody. And if there's destruction coming to people, eternal destruction, you can't, you can't do anything to save them from that. You don't have the kind of firepower to pluck someone out of hell, to change their heart, to set them on a path of righteousness. That's not, that's not your job. That's not what God calls you to do. You're not capable of doing that. You don't have the resources for that. But you do have one job, and I have one job, and it's to tell people. Repent. God is merciful. He'll forgive you. We have to preach the gospel. This need, it's beyond our resources of time. It's beyond our ability to spiritually save someone. But finally, it's obvious, the workers are few, and we're always in need of help. Nobody can do this alone. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law in in Exodus 18, told Moses, you need help. You can't do this all on your own. If you're judging Israel and people are always coming to you about, my neighbor stole my cat and all these other things, you're going to wear yourself out. You You need to delegate. You need help. Like Moses would wear himself out by overseeing all Israel, so those engaged in evangelism always need more help. They can't do it alone. If you look at the example of the, the Apostle Paul, you just see here and there all of these co-workers. It's like Paul has this never-ending supply of co-workers always popping up. Paul needed help. Great, The great Apostle Paul, he needed help. Timothy, Titus, Epaphras, Lucius, Priscilla, Aquila. The list goes on. Luke. This is how Jesus views the world. And it's how we ought to view it as well. There's a spiritual need that God is using limited humans to meet. God knows that this need exceeds our resources in every way. We don't have time. We don't have, we don't, we don't have the capability to do it on our own. We don't have enough strength. We need help. And it's serious because there are multitudes of souls hanging in the balance between heaven and hell, separated by this one thing. What do they do with Christ? God knows we can't reach them all by ourselves. He is sovereign over resources and purposes. So we have to pray. We have to pray. God knows. God will sovereignly provide. And that's an encouragement to pray, isn't it? He knows. But we should pray about evangelism second. Because as Lord of the harvest, God sovereignly uses means in evangelism. Meaning God could act directly himself from heaven, but he doesn't. He uses means. And that's an encouragement to pray as well about those means. And what do I mean? Prayer, excuse me, pray because God uses means to accomplish his purposes. The first means God uses is prayer. God uses prayer to reach men, to reach laborers. Notice the kind of prayer here Jesus Jesus encourages. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech. This isn't the ordinary word for pray, prosukamai. This is beg. Beg, beseech. 
And what is he telling them to beg about? Besiege the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray that God would send out laborers. And notice, we have to ask for this because this is how God works. God works as we ask. And maybe you'd say, well, how does my prayer for laborers really affect who God ends up sending, who God ends up saving? That's a very natural question. You know, if the harvest is plentiful, if there's much to be done, isn't God going to save all of those people that he intends to save anyway? It is true that Jesus rescued all that were given to him. That was one of the glories of his ministry. He could say to the Father, I, all that you gave me, I've not lost a single one except the one that it was prophesied the son of perdition. God's will is never thwarted. That's true. But scripture emphasizes both God's sovereignty to do everything he intends and man's responsibility. It's true. If you would turn back to Ezekiel chapter 3. Just by way of illustration, God really lays it on Ezekiel and says, you're responsible to preach. God's going to do what he's going to do, but you are responsible. Ezekiel chapter 3, starting at verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. God is kind of talking about the, the prophetic role, the prophetic office here, what the prophet actually does. But he's really laying it on him. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he doesn't turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. It's going to be the same result for that wicked person. God's going to give justice there, but God's going to give justice to the one that he called as a watchman, the person who was supposed to say what God said. He was supposed to warn. Look at verse 20. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, or if you didn't warn him when I told you to, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took a warning, and you have delivered yourself. God is sovereign, God is just, but man is responsible, especially those that he has called to preach, to warn about sin. And who did he commission to do that? Just the prophet Ezekiel? Just pastors? Have you ever heard of the Great Commission? God never commissioned me. Yes, he did. God commissioned you, if you're a Christian, and me. The fact is, we don't know how many people God is going to save, we might grant ourselves the assumption that we know, but God, Jesus isn't giving the, the disciples an end date or a number that they, you know, go meet your quota and then it'll be all done. I've saved everybody I'm going to save. God doesn't give us that information. And the point is, 
evangelism and prayer, it's the work of a lifetime. You can't, you won't know. So pray and preach. Lord, please don't let me miss an appointment that you have for me today with someone. God, please don't let those teenagers fall in love with the world if they should be sent to serve as a missionary. Father, please don't let that young man fall into immorality if you intend to use him as your vessel. Lord Jesus, please keep that father from growing complacent if you intend for him to leave his career to serve you as a missionary. God, please help that mother to train up her children to have a heart for you and to have a heart for the lost so that when they grow up, they're yielded to your purposes. Please, God, send out laborers into the harvest. Souls are dying and going to hell. God uses prayer to reach men, to reach harvesters. And you can pray, can't you? You can pray, Lord, send this one. Send that one. Send me. So maybe what difference does my prayer make? Maybe that's just a bad question. Maybe you should ask yourself instead, Father, do I have a heart for the loss like Jesus has? That's really what this prayer is about. Lord Jesus, please give me a heart for the loss to go and win them for you. Lord, please give this person, that person, more and more people hearts like their Savior who cares about the lost and dying. It really is interesting to think about somebody like Saul of Tarsus, that wicked terrorist of the church. How many times do you think people prayed that God would send out laborers into his harvest? Do you think they ever thought God would save him? Maybe people prayed about that. We don't know. But God took someone who is directly opposed to the church and sent him out as a missionary for the church. That's quite a remarkable answer to prayer, isn't it? You might be surprised at how God answers that prayer. Beseech the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. God uses means. He uses prayer to reach men who would serve him, but also God uses the means of men to reach the lost. Men who preach the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How blessed, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings. It's a wonderful thing when God uses you to preach the gospel to a lost person. And again, we could say God could and he will. He'll act directly from heaven. There's going to be an angel, it says in the book of Revelation, who's going to come. He's going to preach an eternal gospel to the whole world. God could do that. He doesn't need you and me. He's going to do it eventually. There's another record in the book of Revelation of an eagle flying in the midheaven, flying and saying to the whole earth, whoa, whoa. He's saying, turn from your sin. There's more judgment coming. God doesn't need you and me, but he chooses to use us. And he does this for his glory. Second Corinthians Chapter 4, Paul faced a lot of criticism from the church at 
Corinth. They were often carnal in the way that they thought. Paul often had to navigate how to instruct them and disciple them and teach them. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's what he calls himself. I'm not from the China cabinet. I'm that piece of plastic where your kid threw all over the ground. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. God entrusted the treasure of the gospel to clay pots. That as soon as it got too dirty, you just had to burn it and shatter it. You couldn't reuse it. You couldn't stick it back in the dishwasher. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? 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 So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Why does God use means? Why does God use faltering, sinful, weak, incapable human vessels like you and me? Because that gives him glory. That gives him glory. He gets the glory when he uses means. God could use angels or animals. But what did he decide to do instead? When Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives and he said, go, therefore, and preach the gospel. Make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Like when God used Gideon and just 300 men to defeat the whole host of Midian. God only needs a few people, a few good men to do the work. That's all he needs. Think about God used singular Joseph to bless the whole known world. Or how God used 12 apostles. That's a dozen. That's it. 12 apostles to shake the whole Roman Empire to its core. Or jump ahead a few centuries. Think about just a few reformers. Throwing the world into confusion as they told the truth and unveiled the scriptures. God uses men and women to do his work. Faithful men, godly men, committed. And what's going to hinder us from embracing the truth about this? Maybe you just doubt that it's true. Maybe you have this attitude of, you know, about prayer. I, I've prayed for a long time and I've never seen God work. Is that going to keep you from praying about evangelism? Of course it is. You need faith to pray. Or maybe you just doubt that you are actually responsible. And again, I would point to, maybe you would say, God hasn't commissioned me. I would point to the great commission that encompasses all of God's people. It's not the great suggestion. But maybe you would have an attitude of just self-assurance. You know, I can do this. You, you, you cast yourself as more than the means God uses to do his work. I'm going to go save some people today. It's not a good attitude because then you're not going to pray. Self-confident, self-assured people. Maybe I should say self, self-confident, self-righteous people. 
saying anything about self-assurance as kind of a personality trait, but just this, this sin of, I can do it. I, I arrogate more power to myself than God has actually bestowed on me. No, God is going to use me by his grace. I need to pray. So pray. Because so many spiritual souls are in need of the gospel. And pray because God uses your prayer and mine to call men to serve him and to call men from death to life. God is sovereign. And he uses means as he sees fit. And one means he uses in a very powerful way is the prayers of the saints. So we should pray about the spread of the gospel and more spreaders of the gospel. Make that a matter of prayer this week. Lord, send people out from our church. Pray because God is sovereign and take encouragement from the truth that God will use your prayers and your words as you preach. But finally, we ought to be fervent in prayer, dependent on God more generally, because he rules over the the whole thing, the whole harvest. And specifically, I want to say Jesus rules over the whole harvest. And you'll see why in a moment. Jesus' authority over the harvest is an encouragement to us to seek him by prayer, to do what he already wants to do, and to do what we want to see him do. Pray because Jesus is sovereign over the whole harvest. I've said God all along. That's true. But specifically, Jesus is Lord of the harvest here. Look in verse 1. Notice what the words say. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Compare that with what is saying, what is said next. And he, what is that referring to? The Lord. He was saying to them, this is Jesus speaking. The harvest is plentiful, but the work laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's more sovereignty. It's his, he owns it. And he is referring to himself as the Lord. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And what's the final piece of evidence that says Jesus is Lord here? What does the Lord of the harvest then do? Look at verse three. Exactly what he just said. Go. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is the Lord of harvest sending out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is the Lord of this spiritual harvest. Pray to him because he's the Lord of it. It's his harvest. Jesus, you could say first, he's sovereign over the lost. He's the one who died to purchase sinners in love. What is that well-known verse? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What do the next few verses say? John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send 
his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And then this comes out in Jesus' own words in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is a lot of authority that Jesus has by right of redemption. He is the one that God sent into the world to do his will. But he knows who his own are, and he will come from them. He is sovereign over the lost, even before they come to him. He says this in John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And even as Jesus is sovereign over the lost, I think it's right for us to get in our minds two apparently contradictory statements, because we might say, well, if he's sovereign over the lost, is he going to keep someone from coming to him? Back in John chapter 6, verse 44, he says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You can't come unless the Father is bringing you to me, is what he says. But then in the same setting, to the same group of people, he says in verse 47, just a few verses later, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You can't come unless the Father is drawing you. But if you believe, I will not turn you away. These are not contradictory. They may seem so. They may be hard for us to understand. But Jesus is sovereign, and we cannot challenge him. Jesus alone is the one through whom men must come to God. He is Lord. He is the only way to the Father. We should pray. Because Jesus is sovereign over the lost, and he has the authority to proclaim himself as the only way to the Father. But also, Jesus is sovereign over the laborers. He's sovereign over you and me. He's your Lord, if you're in Christ. He's my Lord. See, in verse 3, right away, after he says, pray about this, he's providing. He's doing it. He's providing laborers. Go. Behold, I send you into the harvest. And he gives them instructions. And what he's doing here, the, the word, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. This sounds like a nice sanitary word in, in the English. The Greek is actually thrust them out. Uh, in the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and as recorded in Mark, 
It's not just that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. There was an intent about this. He had to be tempted here. The Holy Spirit was compelling him, pushing him there. Jesus wasn't resistant to that. But this is a a forceful term. Jesus will thrust out laborers into his harvest. All right, get going. He's going to send them at the right time. He's going to send them to the right place. Paul refers to this in Acts chapter 22 as he's giving his testimony. Acts 22 verse 21. Paul says this, And he said to me, the Lord Jesus, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God came into Paul's life at the exact right time, and he had a very particular plan for Paul at that time. You're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. That was Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. Jesus is Lord over all this. He knows what needs the church has, when and where, and how much it will take to fill it. He's Lord over all that, and he's going to thrust the laborer out at the right time into the right place. And again, maybe you'd say, Well, God hasn't chosen me. God hasn't called me. This is what Jesus is doing. When he he sends laborers, he calls them. He chooses them. He calls them. He commissions them. That's what he did with Paul. Maybe you'd say, God hasn't called me to be a, a missionary. He hasn't commissioned me. He hasn't chosen me. I would, again, point to the great commission. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God called you from darkness into light, and God gave you the great commission. God has commissioned all of us, even if it's just here. And some do have to stay. Don't misunderstand me. Wherever God has called you, you have to be a missionary there. Maybe God isn't calling you to Thailand or to Germany or to Africa. Kenya. No. Uganda. Or to to travel and be a Bible translator. Maybe God has called you to be a a, a plumber, a teacher, a mom. And God does call to those things. And those are noble things. But God has commissioned you there to reap the harvest there. So don't look for some special word of God. Okay, you're going to the island of Mauritius. You know That might never come. Be sensitive to it. He yielded to it. I once knew a man who often prayed, Lord, I'm in this well-established career. I can never see myself leaving. But if you want me to go to another part of the world, I want to go. I want to go. Send me. That's the right attitude. That is a right attitude. That's a yielded attitude. The whole principle of Christianity is, is built on transmission. What did Paul say to Timothy? What you have heard and seen in me, commit to faithful men who will teach others also. The gospel doesn't spread as we get in our nice little lifeboat to heaven, right? The gospel spreads as we get out and seek people and share the gospel with them and teach them. Make disciples. Jesus is Lord. And if he's working in you about his harvest, You need to yield yourself to him. It's not an option for a Christian. Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. 
the hymn Living for Jesus, one verse goes like this. Living for Jesus through earth's little while, my dearest treasure, the light of his smile. Seeking the lost ones he died to redeem, bringing the weary to find rest in him. Oh, Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee. For thou and thine atonement did give thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone. Of course, he's called you and commissioned you. This great commission is for every Christian. But as you pray for God's will to be done and you really yield yourself to him, and you ask that his kingdom would be advanced and that he would use you to do it. He might answer in more specific ways than that and in ways that might surprise you. Ways that five years ago you never saw coming. And maybe that makes you afraid. What if I start praying and God sends me to some bush tribe in Africa? Sometimes we snicker about this, but if we're honest, sometimes we have little strongholds of fear in our hearts if I really do what he's saying, if I really do what Jesus says, what if I, what if God, and there's just this lack of trust. There's this fear of the unknown, what God could do, what God might change in my life. I actually really like my job. I don't want to move out of my house. I've got all my family around me. There's a lot to lose. When you abandon everything for Christ, if he calls you there, he might just do that. He might call you. He might call me to some bush tribe in Africa. I don't know. I don't know. But don't fear. Don't be afraid of that. I, I would testify to you from personal experience that God is gentle and kind. He knows exactly what his church needs. He's Lord of the church. He knows when it needs something and where it needs it, but he knows what you need to. And he's a shepherd. He's not, he's not the kind of shepherd that just grabs the sheep around the neck and get over here. He doesn't do that. He's a shepherd. He's a tender shepherd. We don't need anything when he's our shepherd. We can rest let your heart take comfort in his tender, loving care and leadership. I want to urge you to pray this way with a heart to resign to your Lord because he is sovereign. He's a king and he is oh so wise. And he's gentle and he's gracious. And in our world, Maybe by your own experience, it might seem like a really terrifying thing to just completely entrust yourself to someone who has that kind of power. But he's good. You're never going to be disappointed. Never will be. So what's your attitude toward the lost? Do you see people as souls in need of salvation like Jesus does? Are you indifferent or complacent or just kind of carefree about eternal souls spending eternity somewhere? God knows the need, and he knows that it exceeds our 
abilities. We have to have his mind about this. And we must seek him to meet the spiritual urgent need to save souls. God uses means to reach the lost. He uses means to reach harvesters, the means of prayer. We should pray to align ourselves with God's purposes and so that that we might see him work his will through us. And we should pray because Jesus is Lord over the harvest. The souls of those who seek and the, the souls who are lost and the people who are seeking them. And when we realize that Christ knows and controls all of this, it really should just be like a a breeze at our backs to hasten us to prayer. I trust you. I want your will to be done. It's good. It's perfect. You're, You're seeking lost sinners like you saw me. Use me. The spiritual harvest is a serious and sober thing. But God has revealed that he is a merciful God who loves to save sinners, and he will use you and me. And we have to start by praying. We have to start by praying. A wrong attitude here is going gonna, is gonna to short-circuit the whole thing. He's sovereign, and he's called us to pray. Instead of letting God's sovereignty be a hindrance to your prayer, let it be an encouragement. Let's heed his sovereign word in this matter of urgent prayer about his sending out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you, and Lord Jesus, we ask, first of all, that you humbly, that you would send out laborers into your harvest. This is a merciful thing that you seek sinners and we want to have hearts like yours to seek them as well. Thank you for using us weak and frail as we are. Help us to think what is true according to this passage and others, that you will use us as we pray, as we speak for you, as we live for you. Help us not to diminish what work you really intend to do. And help us to prove obedient as well. Help us to pray. Lord, thank you for this week of prayer. Uh, Even use these encouragements of your sovereignty over all things to hasten us to prayer. Because we don't know. We can't do all on our own. But you will work as we are on our knees seeking you, our Lord, the Lord of the harvest. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.